broadband. We need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Here's your host, Stephen Smith. Thanks for tuning in today, and I am so excited to have as our guest Dr. Christopher Alley, who's an associate professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia. Welcome to the show today. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Alley joined the department in the fall of 2013 after completing his Ph.D. at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. His current research project that will be coming out as a book next fall that we're very excited about is called Farm Fresh Spectrum. It's uh, looking at rural broadband and the future of connectivity, examining the complicated terrain of rural broadband policy in the United States. And we're really looking forward to, uh, to, to seeing that next year. So the thing we wanted to uh, dig into today and, and really what, uh, what brought your work to our attention recently was an article that you had written, uh, Dr. Alley, on the broadband gap which is something that we, we've all heard of, the broadband gap being a, a very real problem that we hear people in uh, federal government, federal agencies, such as the FCC. We hear commissioners talk about that. We hear uh, elected officials down to the local levels talk about the concern that they have for these children who, especially this year, have been disrupted in their education by uh, not having adequate connectivity at their homes. We get this picture of the the parents going to the, uh, for some reason, it's always the local McDonald's when they tell this story. Uh, they go to the McDonald's and have to sit in the parking lots and connect to the Wi-Fi in order to do their homework. What we're not seeing and what we're not hearing much about until I read your article was uh, how this homework gap impacts the college students. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work and your uh, focus and what you have learned, certainly as a college professor, but also in your research, on how the uh, challenges of uh, rural broadband connectivity are impacting college students. Right. Yeah, I know. And, and it's such a great question. And it's it's such a kind of under-investigated and under, under-spoken about issue when we think about the homework gap and the broadband gap and you know, all of these, all of these kids who can't access, you know, their homework. But one thing I realized as, as someone really sensitive to these issues, I've been researching broadband and broadband policy for four or five years now, kind of immersed in this world. So when the University of Virginia, like every college in the university announced that we'd be going online, one of my immediate concerns was, well, I don't know which one of my students has or has, does not have broadband. Um, this, of course, parallels so much of what we don't know about who has broadband, who doesn't have broadband in the United States. And, and one of my concerns and one of my motivations for writing that, that article is that we are assuming that college students have broadband when they go home. I mean, when they're on campus, when they're on grounds, when they're in dorms, they have broadband because the universities are providing it. As soon as they leave, we don't know what their levels of connectivity are. We don't know if they're connected. We don't know if they can afford to be connected. We don't know if they live in a rural area um, like so many Americans where just the wires are not there. And so I wrote that article with a lot of this in mind, reminding exactly those policymakers and those providers um, that, that college students are facing the exact same homework gap 
as their K to 12 peers, but for some reason they're getting left out of the conversation. And again, I think they're getting left out of the conversation uh, because of what I call the presumption of the connected that, that we just presume or assume that they have connectivity because they're college students. Of course, why wouldn't they? But I ran a, in one of my classes um, early on, early in the spring, I ran a survey just trying to figure out who had broadband, who didn't, trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do online for my students? And and upwards, uh, you know, a significant amount of my students did not have confidence in their broadband connections at home to do a Zoom conversation, a live video Zoom conversation. You know, and that's striking. This is an elite public university where, you know, many students couldn't participate meaningfully in a live Zoom conversation. And so what I ended up doing was a couple of things. One, encouraging my colleagues to also do these kind of broadband surveys of their students to check levels of accessibility. And then also in that class, I ended up making it text only. So we would go into a chat room, you know, kind of like you would in the 1990s when I grew up with like ICQ and AOL, and we would chat, like literally text chat rather than voice or audio and the, the students got a kick out of it because, it, you know, for them, it was totally old school. Um, but they, they appreciate the fact that I was sensitive to, to the natures of the digital divide that are impacting students. And, and that means that when we send students home because of COVID, we can't assume they've got broadband at home or good enough broadband to do a live virtual class. And, and so that's what kind of inspired the article, but also has inspired a lot of my work in the past few months, getting ready for the fall semester and getting UVA ready for the fall semester. So you had enough issues among your students that, uh, that it dissuaded you from even trying, um, even audio, much less a uh, uh, video connectivity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, enough students also expressed concerns over audio that, uh, hmm. I just ended up you know, going to this text, uh, text-based interface. Now, I should preface this by saying that was not the only um, element of engagement. I was also recording lectures that they could download. All of my students said they could download lectures. But in order to interact with me and interact with their peers, we did it purely by text. Mm-hmm. In the collaborative setting was, was yeah. by text. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was the what you found uh, from that survey of your students... Uh, a similar response to what your uh, colleagues there, the other professors were finding when you reached out to them? Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I haven't unfortunately had a lot of chance to follow up with a lot of my colleagues. I do know that what my colleagues really, you know, they really appreciated kind of being tuned into these issues and tuned into like how to talk about these issues. Um, uh, you know, we were kind of all just expected to jump on Zoom and then Zoom, Zoom would be like the, the great savior of higher ed, right? But it turns out Zoom obviously came with all these complications. Mm-hmm. One of them being that no one ever talked about bandwidth, right? Um, one of my current concerns actually is about fraternities and sororities because there you've got 30 or 40 or 20 kids in a, in a, in a building sharing a broadband connection. Um, and unless that broadband connection is fiber, you're going to have problems if they're all trying to get, you know, stream a class virtually or participate in class virtually. Um, so that's, you know, kind of my, 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 my current campaign. But I'm, I'm pleased to say that, you know, it does seem like that my class may have been a bit of an anomaly in terms of the high percentages of students who aren't connected. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be sensitive to their issues. Mm, absolutely. 
So even even those uh, students who may have stayed on campus in the uh, sororities and, and fraternities there could well have been experiencing similar issues if they were all sitting there trying to Zoom with their uh, professors during classes, huh? Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, as I often say, I say in teaching, I say in my writing, like not all broadband is created equal. Um, so it depends entirely on your type of connection, whether or not multiple people can can virtually chat um, simultaneously, uh, uh, you know, like on Zoom, for instance. And and unless you've got a really, you know, high quality connection there, you're, you're going to, you're going to, uh, you're going to get some buffering, you're going to get interference, and all of that interferes with the learning experience, right? In a time in which the learning experience has already been so interrupted um, and, and anxiety-prone because of COVID, now, you know, it, it's frustrating. No one likes when your screen buffers, right? No one likes when your screen squeezes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we need to think through, does, are those students getting a, a lesser quality educational experience with us? because of technology. And if the answer is yes, then it's our responsibility as professors, as educators, as higher ed institutions to develop plans to make sure those students are connected. Mm. Uh, what is the schedule at, um, at the university there, uh, University of Virginia? Well, we're recording this into the second week of September, and have uh, students come back on campus now? Uh, so yes, they've, they've come back on campus, and they've started um, attending classes in person. My department, the Department of Media Studies, has elected pre- uh, predominantly to be online. So all, both of my classes that I teach are on are both online, um, and that goes for the majority of my, my colleagues. UVA uh, really let it be up to the professor and the department to decide which classes would be online and which classes wouldn't. But I'll say that any class at UVA that is in person has to have a virtual component so that if a student, mm. you know, says, I want to take that class, but that class is only in person, that, cl- that student still has the ability to choose the virtual option of that class. And then it's up to the professor to figure, to tailor the virtual component. So we've done this hybrid model. Absolutely. Okay. Well, if um, you know, we're seeing we're seeing some uh, reports of uh, even with the hybrid models that you know we're we're seeing reports of some escalating um, uh, viral infections uh, on some uh, campuses and some you know schools and you know even high schools and uh, I think everyone is moving into the fall semester with. an understanding that this is going to be a fluid situation mm-hmm. and we're going to kind of see where, where, where things go. Um, how are you feeling as a professor? If, uh, if, if we're looking at a situation here in a few weeks or months, if, if you can't, if you get to the point that you cannot complete this semester with all the students fully engaged, you know, on, on campus to a degree, and we go back to, you know, what we were looking at earlier this year. Well, I, again, you know, I think so. I, I'm lucky in that um, with both of my classes being online, um, you know, my students, most of my students are, are back in Charlottesville, even though they're online with me. If, if we get to a situation where students are literally sent home, um, I, th- I do think it's, a, it's incumbent upon me to, you know, actually send that survey out again. Right. Because I've surveyed students to make sure they had their connections, you know, a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, if they end up changing locations, we're going to have to reevaluate. And, 
you know, a number of our students at the University of Virginia come from rural Virginia. Um, a, a number come from from Northern Virginia, the Washington D.C. area, but a, a huge proportion come from rural Virginia. Um, rural Virginia is very poorly connected, uh, like so much of rural America is. And you know, if we end up uh, sending students home, um, then again, I'm going to redo my survey. And we're like you said, we have to be fluid. We've got to be flexible. And if I need to go back to text you know, conversations, then so be it. If it means that I need to record more lectures, so be it. Um, but I will make sure that each and every one of those students has a fair and equitable experience in my class. And uh, I would like to think that that would go for the rest of my colleagues in the Department of Media Studies and at UVA. I think it's um, it's an obvious thing that across many, many sectors in our society, we were not prepared. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure how you can be for something of this magnitude, really. Um, you know, we, we were just not prepared for the, for the changes that we were going to have to make. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I have seen so many wonderful examples, including a lot of rural broadband providers coming, uh, really stepping up to the plate and making swift changes in order to make the best of a bad situation. How do you feel about our readiness as a country um, and, and, and what has to be done and, and, and feel free to jump into the, some of the, uh, um, the material that you cover, you're going to cover in your book that's coming out. Uh, what, what do we have to do to make sure as a country that we're more ready if something of this magnitude comes along again, or if the magnitude returns and this gets worse, what, what do we need to be looking at as a nation? Right. I mean, that's, that's such a great question. And, and you're, you're so right to say that we were unprepared and we could say, you're, you're also right. Like, I mean, how could we be prepared for this? But the fact of the matter is that we've been thinking about broadband and universal broadband for at least six years, if not, well, actually at least 10 years since the 2010 national broadband plan. You can go even before that, the t- uh, 2009 stimulus package actually included $7 billion for broadband deployment, right? So we've been, we've been right. understanding that broadband needs to be universal for slightly longer than a decade. I mean, USDA has been funding broadband for 20 years. So this, so, you know, kind of the, one of the things that really baffles me and kind of has driven my research is how is it that we've spent so much money, $10 billion a year by my calculation. Um, and yet the digital divide uh, not only exists, but in my estimation is growing. Um, you know, and we can talk about the digital divide, not only between those who have the inf- access to the infrastructure and those who don't, which tends to be rural urban, right? In rural America, we don't have the infrastructure in urban America. We do, but it's the digital divide is also about, can you afford it? Right. And cost tends to be an urban issue. Uh, and that's where a lot of unconnected people are, you know, uh, something like, uh, you know, over over 10% of New Yorkers don't have um, the internet because they can't afford it. Like, that's crazy, right? These are things we, like, we should have been thinking about. So I think what what the, the, the pandemic has done, you know, is two things. One, uh, expose the failures of broadband policy, but two, given us an opportunity to rethink and step up. Um. So one of the major things that we have to do, and we still don't know, we don't know who has broadband and who doesn't. We also don't know who's underconnected and who is, you know, uh, minimally connected. We don't have those numbers. 
the FCC's uh, methodology is incredibly flawed. It drastically overcounts and overestimates the level of connectivity in this country, upwards of 50%. Um, we're letting the largest telecommunications companies kind of run the policy show, um, and there's very little accountability for them. Um, and we minimize the role of cooperatives and municipalities and local and rural ISPs who are doing the best that they can. So I think this has created a perfect storm of the fact that upwards of what, 42 million Americans can't, don't have access to the internet at all because of infrastructure. Microsoft says that at least maybe upwards of 162.8 million Americans or 50% of the country don't access the internet at minimal speeds. This is ridiculous for a country that invented the internet. Um, so I think mm. we need, well, first of all, we need to figure out who has it and who doesn't. <laughs> like that's, that's gotta be step one, right? Um, we've, right. we've got to uh, uh, get rid of state laws that stop municipalities from offering or contemplating broadband, right? Right now, 19 states prohibit municipalities from uh, funding uh, broadband deployment. Right. But if you're in if you're in a, a small, you know, rural county seat and you don't have a provider, but your state bars you from becoming your own provider. I mean, what are you supposed to do? The market has already failed you. Um, you're stuck. Uh, I, I think we need to raise the bar in terms of speeds. Right now, we define broadband uh, at 25 megabits per second download, three megabits per second upload. We've had this definition since 2015. The reason we have it is that it looks really good because almost everyone has that speed, except for those 42 million. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, we need to raise the bar. We need to be competitive. Um, we need policies uh, that need to stop privileging the biggest providers and, and, and start you know, treating everybody, all, all types of providers, equally. Um, I actually think you know, uh, what COVID has also done is... In 2017, the FCC released a report saying that it would cost us $80 billion to connect everybody with fiber, $80 billion to connect the country. In 2017, that seemed like an astronomical amount of money for the Internet. 2020, when we're thinking about two, three trillion dollar stimulus packages, suddenly $80 billion doesn't sound like a lot of money. So this is an opportunity for us to to connect this country quickly um, using some of the stimulus uh, money. And there's precedent for this. We did this in the 1930s and 1940s with rural electricity. Um, the government stepped in and funded these networks. Now, that doesn't mean it was a government-provided electrical service. Cooperatives were created to manage it. They, were, they just got their loans and grants from what was then called the Rural Electrification Administration. There's nothing stopping us from right. doing that now. Um, we just need the political will to do it. Mm, great point. Yep, you've covered a lot, you covered a lot of good <laughs> ground there. And one well, one thing that I would like to uh, um, really uh, emphasize something that you said: the current definition of uh, broadband being uh, twenty five download speed, uh, three megabits per second upload speed. That uh, not only is it is it not adequate for an average household now, but in the new reality where we are having to do a lot of video conferencing, file sharing, you know, the work from home. Some of those numbers are incredible that I've seen the, uh, the shift that has taken place mm -hmm. in terms of uh, remote work. And, of course, we're seeing 
employer after employer make announcements that this is going to be the way that they're going to operate for some time. Maybe not 100% of their workforce, but there's going to be an incredible amount of employees who find themselves in a work-from-anywhere situation. Three megabits per second upload will not support even having a uh, Zoom conversation just one on one, you know, much less several voices involved, because the uh, we've really seen a shift in the amount of data that we're having to upload now just to operate in this uh, in this new reality. Absolutely, um, you know, the the fact that our definitions are not symmetrical and that three is so low, you can't do anything like you just said with three megabits per second upload. In, in my interviews, one of my favorite uh, quotes is that. Uh, Download is about consumption. Upload is about production. All right. So, so uh, you know, download is about Netflix. Upload is about doing business. And and so, it really, it's disenfranchising businesses. Um, you know, if we if we're wanting to have this big pro business rhetoric here. Um, so there's there's a number of of really great scholars and thinkers who say you know we need a minimum speed of a hundred a hundred. Um, I was just doing some looking around at other countries. Canada's minimum definition is 5010. Um, you know, we are low uh, by our build-out standards or by our threshold standards. But I will say, you know, the politics of this, what 25.3 does do is that it allows uh, telecommunications providers to not have to upgrade their networks, right? Because they can probably hit 25.3 on a good day. So, in my research, and one of my big critiques is that the reason that 25.3 threshold has lasted as long as it has, um, and the FCC doesn't seem to inclined to to raise it, is that it keeps you know these big companies in business, um, and you know, and they treat it as a ceiling, right, to meet, not as a floor to build on. Right, right. It's like the the humorist who joked once. Uh, Keep your expectations for your children low, and you'll never be disappointed. Right, exactly. Uh, a- and and you know the SEC can now say, oh look, we've got ninety six percent. I can't remember what the exact number is. Coverage of the United States at twenty five three. But you know, if you think about reporting, companies don't have to report actual speeds; they only have to report advertised speeds. You know, and all of that. So all of these rules seem to benefit the largest providers, um, and and they really. Uh, mask or hide the amazing work being done, particularly in rural America, from cooperatives and and smaller ISPs who are really invested in connecting their communities. So some might listen to this overview and say, okay, I, I get an idea of the landscape, but what is the real cost? Because aren't we really talking about convenience when you talk about um, instead of doing your remote classes with uh, with a video component from the uh, collaboration uh, aspect, uh, you you found a workaround and you're using text based only. Uh, are there real ramifications here? Don't we have other things to worry about as a nation? But some of your work, you've really you've really taken a deep look at what uh, what's the fallout from having. Uh, students in college who are suffering from the uh, the lack of connectivity or lack of adequate connectivity, and these are things that can play out and and, and really impact them and their career and, and ultimately their lives for years to come, right? 
Right. You know, okay. So there's a couple of, there's, there's a, there's a couple of ramifications here. One is obviously, um, with students. I mean, students without access to internet have a lower GDP or um, GPA, not GDP. Sorry. That goes K to 12 and, and mm-hmm. university, right? Their grades will be lower. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you think about what we want from our students in terms of tech savviness, students without access to the internet are that much less tech savvy. Um, but I'm also thinking like bigger. We know that companies will not relocate to an area that doesn't, that can't offer them high speed broadband, usually fiber, right? That is a direct disenfranchisement to rural America. Um, when they're trying to attract businesses to stay in rural America or enter rural America. Here's something else. A high-speed connection raises a home's value by 3.1%. Mm-hmm. So there's, there, you know, with or without a high-speed connection, not any connection, high-speed, usually fiber, right? Your home's value goes up. In a time of COVID, this, like, access to the internet is a life and death issue. Telemedicine, for instance. Um, you know, this is, you know, this is going to be one of the major revolutions um, of telemedicine during this time. Um, we need to be able to talk with our doctors and uh, you can't do that over text message, right? I mean, I can try and walk a student through one of the readings that we've done over text message. Um, but I can't, you know, uh, a medical doctor, I don't think can, you know, diagnose somebody just by reading symptoms, right? You got to look at somebody. Um, (laughs) right. You know, I don't know. I've got a rash. Can you look at this? Right. I can't go, I can't drive 30 miles to the nearest health clinic or my health clinic is closed or I'm worried about COVID or I'm immunocompromised. Um, high speed internet is, we're not talking about the difference between buying a Toyota and a Lamborghini, um, in terms of like, let's say fiber in terms of high speed, right? We're talking about the difference between walking and buying a Toyota, we're walking right now hmm. and the Toyota is high speed internet. And then we'll, you know, everything hmm. else coming up is, is wonderful, different models of this of Toyota and Lamborghinis. But like the analogy, I've heard this analogy used a lot about, uh, uh, well, why does ever, why do we need ever, to, everyone to buy the Lamborghini of the internet? It's not the Lamborghini of the internet. This is just baseline. This is just baseline to live and operate in the 21st century. Well put, you know, I, I could even see a, a scenario where a student, um, let's say that they they have to go home, um, they they can't stay on campus, they they do not have connectivity at home, and they say, "Well, I'm just not going for this next semester, and I'm going to wait till this thing passes, and hopefully things will be back to normal next year." I'm sure you have seen cases where students make that sort of decision for. Yeah, you know, whatever the case may have been, and you never see that student again. Oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, uh, I think that's a, that's a that's a very real concern of students opting or being concerned about not being able to access materials and participate. So they just take the year off, and then one year becomes two years, or two years becomes three years, and then we lose we lose that student, we lose that voice. Um, you know, I, I've also heard of of uh, community colleges just completely stopping the semester, not even going online because so many of their students don't have an internet connection. They feasibly cannot conduct school anymore. So students have, every student has lost a semester or a year. Um, you know, I've, I've also heard of rural school districts doing that. And so, um, 
you know, I just read a story, an interesting story in the Canadian North where uh, broadband is, is equally as terrible as it is in rural America. They're using phones and fax machines um, to connect with students because they have phone lines at least, right? I mean, when was the last time any of us used a fax mm-hmm. machine? But, um, <laughs> you know, it's amazing the workarounds that communities are doing, but imagine a world in which they didn't have to work so hard to get connected and they could focus on other things like staying healthy. Right. And, and as you touched on um, earlier, we're not talking about an issue. I mean, we're focusing on this uh, homework gap in, in this episode, but we're not talking about an issue that impacts just one specific area, one aspect of our of our lives, you know, much less society and, and, and the workings thereof. We're talking about the impact on human lives. We're talking about a technology that is no longer um, something that's optional. It's the way things operate these days and, and from from healthcare, certainly the education, but small business, economic development. You're talking about taking an entire generation and saying that, you know, you're not going to have all the opportunities that, you know, it's going to take us another generation to fix this issue and then everything's going to be great. But what about the, the human toll that that takes, not just on, you know, uh, uh, lost productivity and uh, lower wages and lost opportunities, lower GDP. You know, we're, we're, we need to look past those numbers and say, these are human lives that we can, if we get the policy right, if we get our focus uh, right. And if we put the dollars, the policy, the, the, the resources, uh, the attention behind that, that we can actually fix this and it be something positive moving forward. And from, from what I hear, I, th- I, th- I think your work really advocates for that. Thank you. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm trying and I, I echo everything, everything that you say, because this is not, this is not an impossible situation. Um, this is not, this is not a problem without a solution. We know there is a solution. Um, we just have to get everybody on board to that solution. There's a very clear solution to this to these issues. Um, and, you know, like I kind of said before, this is a, we have a moment to kind of, you know, rally around uh, broadband, broadband connectivity. Um, if only because like you said, there's a generation of kids um, who are missing out on opportunities. Well, I certainly want to have you back on the podcast when the, your, uh, when your book comes out next year. But uh, give our listeners a little bit of a tease, if you will, and uh, kind of give us a, a point or two, a chapter title or two, or, or something to uh, um, look forward to. Kind of, kind of plug your book for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, the book's the book's title is a, a little bit in flux right now. It's Farm Fresh Spectrum: uh, Rural Broadband and the Future of Connectivity. That might change, but obviously my name is hasn't changed. So if anyone wants to, you know, look it up. Um, you know, one of my favorite chapters is titled the, the Jolly Green Giant Goes Digital. Um, and it's about the way the role of broadband in um, American farming. And I spent a lot of time on American farms, uh, uh, particularly in Minnesota. So the, the, the chapter actually recalls me spending time um, in Blue Earth, Minnesota, which is home of the Jolly Green Giant. Uh, and some of the amazing applications of broadband to contemporary agriculture. So it's it's a chapter that I 
that I try and, you know, kind of humanize broadband a little bit and say, well, it's not just about broadband policy. Look at what we can do with broadband. Um, and the conclusion of the, of the book actually uh, outlines my vision for a connected America. So what is it that I think through my, my four years of research that we need um, in order to make sure everybody is connected? Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to, to reading that. And uh, we'll certainly have you back on to talk about that and uh, help you uh, help you spread the word on that, promote that book. That would be wonderful. Be, it, it would be an honor to come back. It was an honor to speak with you today. And uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about the homework app. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Alley. And uh, if, if someone out there listening wants to uh, connect with you, uh, are you on um, Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? How will folks find you? Yeah, um, I can be reached uh, by email. So my uh, email address is C-A-L-I-Cali at Virginia.edu. Um, and I'm on Twitter every day at Ali underscore Christopher. All right, great. Well, uh, look, look forward to connecting with you on there as well. Again, our uh, uh, guest today is Dr. Christopher Alley, and he is the Associate Professor in the Department of uh, Media Studies at University of Virginia. It's been uh, great having you on today. I've enjoyed our conversation. Me too, immensely. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to Rural Broadband Today, where we take a look at the people and the issues shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Stephen Smith. And this program is produced by WordSouth, a content marketing company. Please share this episode with your network and help us tell the rural broadband story. Thank you for listening. Rural Broadband Today is a production of WordSouth, a content marketing company.